In today's episode, we unravel the powerful story of a life-changing 911 call that not only saved a life, but also opened up a conversation about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Rising Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa, and today's guest is going to inspire you in so many ways. Todd and I met almost exactly one year ago at a mental health event where he openly shared his journey from the stage. He's a mental health advocate, suicide attempt survivor, in recovery from addiction, speaker, author, and host of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you. Um, it's it's lovely to see you again. And at that exact same event a year ago, this year, you, you were speaking at it. And so that was very, very exciting. Right. Be- it seems like we keep, uh, we're like a uh, little in a pinball game or something where we keep literally bumping into each other at these mental health events. So clearly yeah. it's, uh, you know, I really believe in the universe when, when you meet people, it's for a reason. It's a, a reason, a season or a lifetime I've been told. Yes. Or a lesson somewhere maybe, in there. there, there I have, have a few lesson that. people. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that too. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> hmm. So we're having this chat because you've had a long journey with mental health. How long does that go back and when did things start? Oh boy. Uh, this could be a three hour episode if we wanted it to be, but uh, it actually started in grade five. Uh, I was diagnosed with a stomach ulcer um, and it, I mean, when you're grade five, most kids don't have, uh, you know, stomach issues that like. 80 year old CEOs of billion dollar companies have, right? Because they're, they have so much anxiety and pressure and, and, uh, worry. Uh, so, uh, but that, that is a, an ailment that kind of runs in my family. My grandfather had it and my mom has issues. So nobody thought anything of it. Uh, so they treated me for, you know, the physical part of it, but nobody really questioned why. You know, was there anxiety? Why does he worry so much? Um, and that was the thing. Like, nobody called it anxiety when I was grade five. Uh, so I'm 46 years old. So that, you know, that was almost 40 years ago. Um, so, yeah, the word anxiety wasn't really a thing. It was like more like, oh, you worry too much. Or my mom would call it a nervous stomach. So, you know, it was a, the nervous boy. <laughs> I love it's and I was like, no, it's called chronic anxiety, actually. Um, so that's kind of when it started. Uh, and then in high school, I kind of was introduced to alcohol being in a small town. And well, I mean, I say that, but I mean, kids drink everywhere. Um, but that was very much the culture when I was uh, that age in small town, Saskatchewan. And a lot of my anxiety kind of, I don't know, it didn't go away, but I didn't worry about every little thing like I used to. Um, and then, yeah, at a high school, it, you know, drinking turned into more and more. And there's a lot of addiction to my family, a lot of anger issues in the with the men. Uh, so um, a lot of my anxiety and depression eventually turned into anger. Uh, I was bouncing around from job to job. I was doing... You know, I, I was, it's so weird. I've been, uh, 
discussing this lately, how life can be very polarizing, like at all times. <laughs> so it's like some of these moments I look back and it's like, that was the darkest time of my life. But then I'm also like, oh, but I had so much fun too. So it's like, you know, you, you can be miserable and happy at the same time. And it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around how that's possible. But, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's like different frequencies, so they're not actually overlapping. They're actually just happening at the same time or something. And, um, so anyway, uh, cause yeah, I used to play in bands and stuff and it was like, I mean, talk about like touring with a band and stuff. It is so much fun, but also so anxiety inducing and you're drinking all the time and you're calling home and the girlfriend's crying and upset and missing you. And so it's like, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's very polarizing. Uh, so anyway, I had cool things like that going through my life, but also just everyday kind of schlub stuff, band breaks up and then you're doing just labor jobs for minimum wage. So then my anxiety, depression stuff kind of turns more into the anger um, and I, I think I'd rather feel depressed than angry. I can't stand that feeling. I'd wake up angry and go to work angry just cause I felt, I don't know, unfulfilled or something or not satisfied with life. And, you know, at the drop of a hat, I, I would just like be throwing stuff and smashing stuff. And, and it's not a good look. I mean, I felt like a child having a, a temper tantrum. Like I've seen family members do it. And, and every time I'm just like, oh my God, this is so one scary for people too just annoying you just want to like shut up you want to you know and then there i am doing it and it's like oh my god i hate this um but eventually you know i i started drinking and using marijuana constantly um and you know my issues came to a head at a, a suicide attempt i tried going to the hospital once and was basically turned away which is kind of a reason for when i started advocating because uh, I went to the ER and was turned away. Um, so then, uh, yeah, eventually stuff came to a head again and I ended up, I, I quit drinking and, uh, that was huge for my anger and my depression, still working through anxiety. Um, and COVID hit and more job bouncing around. Uh, then eventually I was diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago. Uh, and, uh, so this fall I was working with EMDR therapists to maybe work through some of my trauma stuff. So, so yeah, it's, it's basically lifelong and there's always, anytime you peel off a layer, there's another layer there that you could definitely work on. And whether it's, um, you use the same strategies or the same tools that you used before, or you need a different strategy like EMDR or a different diagnosis like ADHD, a different medication or a different uh, perspective when it comes to therapies or different modalities. Um, I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm just trying to get through the day um, without letting these extreme polar feelings pull me one way or another and just keep the balance really. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a journey. I have a question for you. I just want to circle back to something that you said. Definitely. Um, in your opinion, do you mm -hmm. think that there is a connection between, I don't want to just say mental health, but let's say anxiety, just because mm -hmm. that's something you're familiar with. Do you think that there's a, a an association, a link, a parallel 
between substance use, whether it's alcohol or drugs, and anxiety? Um, I do. I mean, of course, everybody's different. But when I worked, because I worked at uh, the the treatment center I went to uh, after I quit drinking for a couple of years. And I mean, it was quite obvious that uh, addiction is a comorbidity of not just anxiety, but like um, PTSD, um, bipolar, uh, different personality disorders. Uh, and, and really an anxiety is just a symptom of a greater thing quite often too. So, um, so yeah, I do think that substance abuse and anxiety, not only do they link, but they are a very common comorbidity of a lot of other bigger issues, including trauma. And I mean, trauma is also uh, a huge uh, contributor to personality disorders and things. So, um, so yeah, when I, it, it, it actually drives me nuts a little bit that when we say mental health and addictions, I wish we could just get rid of the addictions part because it is part of mental health. I, when, when I say mental health or mental illness, it, it includes addictions. Um, someday it'd be nice to just drop that, but for people that maybe don't understand, it's, it, it, I don't know, they're still separated for some reason. Absolutely. I found, uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier before I hit record, you know, that they're even in amongst our own stories, right? We are not just this one silo, this single aspect of mental health. Mm -hmm. I really see mental health myself as a massive umbrella. And under that umbrella, there are a myriad of topics, including addictions, including grief, including so, so many things. Um, but you're right. And it, it just, the more I learn, and I feel like there's so much still to be learned, that trauma, trauma, my goodness, I think if, you know, if we could all heal our traumas, we would probably be far better off. But it's, unfortunately, we live in this, this symptom fix the symptom kind of society, right? Mm -hmm. So we kind of have to pick at the layers, as you say, we kind of maybe get a handle on one layer and lo and behold, there's another layer to deal with. So interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so was, for you. Say, sorry, I was going to say also, even with my ADHD, it's, I feel like that's a huge contributor to my anxiety, depression, substance abuse, maybe not the cause. Like I do think it caused those things, but also other things also contributed to those things. So it's very nuanced. We're all very, it's all very complicated. There's no one treatment, one pill, one disorder, one diagnosis that's going to fix everything for me. Anyway, I'm finding that, um, yeah, that I think I have, so I think I have ADHD, but I also think I do have chronic anxiety on top of that. I also do think that, DNA has something to do with it and, you know, nature versus nurture. So, so yeah, you, like you were saying before, you throw spaghetti at the wall and you try different modalities and tools and things. And, uh, hopefully, uh, you, you figure out what's going to help you with that particular, I don't know, symptom or, <laughs> or whatever you're you peel another layer off and you go, oh, okay, that's better now moving on to the next one. 
Exactly. And uh, I'm I'm certainly uh, not an expert with a bunch of letters behind my name, but I do know that because we are all complex human beings and we are all learning so much more that I think the key maybe is being open, right? Um, maybe we don't know what it is that we need or that what's going to quote unquote work. I don't know that, you know, we can be fixed as human beings as much as people try to fix us, but, you know, to cope better or to deal with the situation, whatever it looks like for us, but. Or change a belief system within yourself. Right. A mindset shift, whatever you want to call it. But I think the key is being open. And like you say, to, to keep trying the things, even though you might not think that it's your thing, like EMDR, man, game changer. Game changer. When I first read about what it was and what was entailed, I thought, this is insane. <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I I come from a long history of working in, in the medical system. I'm research-driven. I'm data-focused. And that EMDR, just when I was reading about it, thought I thought, well, I'm not so sure about this. But it was one of the greatest things that I did for myself. And I cannot say enough about it. And I tell people all the time, even if it's a placebo and it works, it worked. So who gives a shit? (laughs) 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about a visit that you had that involved a 911 call. Mm. Uh, Well, this was... So I'm, I'm getting so old. I'm like, it was like eight years ago. And then it's like, like someone's like, no, that was like 12 years ago. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> so I'm not sure how long ago it was. It was quite a while ago. It was. So this was really some of my darkest times. Uh, the year before I had drove myself to the hospital in Regina and ER asked for help. None was given. Um, and so I felt as a man in a small town prairie like it was embarrassing for me as a man to go look for help from emotions. Uh, it took a, it was huge for me to go do that. And then to be like told to go home. And basically it, I was a super embarrassed. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I just got to suck it up here. I guess um, I was already on meds and kind of seeing a counselor, but um, still I, you know, it was, it was embarrassing to me. So over the year I was, uh, I was bad. I was a bad father. I was a bad husband. I was a bad employee. I was a bad son. Um, and I was using marijuana, drinking all the time. I was at a job I didn't, wasn't finding fulfillment in, whether that was the job itself or just because I was in that, uh, you know, frame of mind. Uh, and things came to a head one day and, uh, I had a few drinks in me already. I wasn't like super drunk or anything. My wife said something that triggered me. I don't even remember what I went into. I don't know if it's a psychotic episode or what, but it's it's like a dream slash. I don't remember. I had people fill in some of the blanks, like even years later, but I, uh, my wife said something and I, and I, I snapped and I started like punching myself in the face. I started like slamming my head on like, table and I'm like, she freaked her out. She grabbed our kids. They were little at the time. She went out the door and while I was there by myself, apparently I just like put my head through the wall and like 
I was slamming it as hard as I could against uh, appliances and things. Like I just, I, I was convinced in my mind that I just had ruined my life. My wife and kids are gone forever. Um, over that year, I was not just had suicidal ideation. I mean, I was, I was obsessed about it. Every night before bed, I was pushing knives against my throat and against my wrists. And I was doing really reckless behaviors at, at work that was like, you know, dangerous, uh, not for other people, but for myself, you know, and they, when people ask if, if you had a plan, you know, when doctors are assessing you, like, do you have a plan? Are you suicidal? Do you have a plan? It's like, it didn't matter where I was during my day. I had places I could do things to, to take my life. Right. Um, I worked at the PFRA at the tree nursery in Indian head. It was like, that's a great tree, you know, mental note, you know, um, I tools in my shop. I was like at work. It was like, didn't matter where I was. I had a plan. Uh, so things really came to a head. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was, I was basically slamming my head against stuff. And then my brother showed up. He was the one I had a couple beers with earlier. And my wife apparently went to his place and, um, said, what the hell were you guys doing? Like, you have to go help Todd. He's freaking out. And, uh, I pulled out a knife cause I, I'd been practicing for a year and this was it. And he tried to stop me and I swung the knife at him. And then he, uh, jumped on top of me. He's a big dude. <laughs> he got on top of me and pinned me down. And apparently my sister was there too. And she's like trying to get me to smoke weed to calm down. Um, and someone called the ambulance or called 911. And next thing I know, there's three or four police officers in my, in my dining room. Uh, they don't know what the hell's going on. They see a knife on the floor. They see a big guy on top of another guy and like all hell breaks loose. Uh, eventually, um, I'm screaming at them to shoot me. Uh, I'm begging them to kill me. Uh, I grab one of their guns. Um, I didn't get it out of the holster, but I, I, you know, I got my hand on one of their guns and then, and then, uh, things really escalated and I had parts of my body that I didn't know had feelings that were hurting because of <laughs> police are very good at, uh, you know, detaining people. Let's put it that way. Uh, and yeah, they tied me up and I just remember crying, like, like not like not sobbing. I mean like scream crying, begging them to shoot me. And I, and I remember saying like, you're hurting me. I'm tired of hurting. Stop hurting me. I'm tired of hurting. Kill me. Shoot me. Um, and, but anyway, they, they detained me and got me in their vehicle and they, and they took me to my local hospital here in Indian head, which then they put me in an ambulance and took me to Regina, um, to the general hospital. And they finally admitted me into the hospital there, but I remember pulling up. It was almost a year to the day that I tried get going to the hospital on my own. And I thought, holy shit, like this is, this is what it took to get into the hospital this time I'm handcuffed to a gurney, strapped to a gurney with in an ambulance with two police officers on either side of me. Um, but anyway, I got there. <laughs> I spent a couple of weeks there. Uh, and I mean, I could write a whole TV series just about the two weeks <laughs> being in there. And I learned something while I was in there. I learned that, you know, you, you don't really get help. <laughs> In the hospital necessarily. Uh, it was a safe place for me to be, to chill out for a couple of weeks till I was like, got my wits about me again. Um, and it did 
speed up the process to uh, start seeing a psychiatrist because I was on like a year long wait list. And uh, once I got there, it was like instantly I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pushed up the wait list. Uh, so, so there was that and it was, it was the beginning, I guess, of my healing process, even though it still took probably five years of really, you know, dark moments. But, um, so yeah, there were, there were a couple kind of rock bottom moments after that, but that was kind of the, the major one that kind of got the ball rolling a bit. So that was scary. Hey, Rising Strong listeners. If you've been enjoying the inspiring interviews on the podcast, we'd love your support to help us reach more listeners and hopefully gain some sponsorship. To do that, please like, follow, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And here's a little extra incentive. Leave us a five-star review and you'll be entered to win some cool Rising Strong swag. Your support means the world to me. Now, back to the show. Well, and what breaks my heart the most listening to that is that something, a situation so extreme is what it took for you to get some attention, medical, professional, whatever, all the attention yeah. How many people suffer in silence? Some people don't have these major breakdowns. That's terrifying that our system is so broken that it it takes that much to finally get attention. And then what did your journey after that look like? Did were you able to access a psychiatrist or a counselor? You know, did it tell us what that looked like? Uh, so, well, actually while I was in there twice, AA came to my, my, ho- my hospital room and I was like, I, I shooed them away. Cause I was like, well, I'm crazy depressed. I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I have enough issues. I don't need to join a cult. <laughs> so I, I, I shooed them away. Um, and the next few years, I mean, I was, uh, I was not thriving was opposite. I was surviving, not thriving. Let's put it that way. I was just, you know, going through the motions of my day to day. Um, I kind of quit drinking on my own for a little bit, but I really upped my marijuana use because, you know, as a stoner, you don't want to, you know, it's like, it's good for you, man. It helps my anxiety, bro. You know, it's like, I, I know different now, but it drives me nuts when I hear people say that it's not even addicting, man. Um, and then, you know, I run out of weed and I have a nervous breakdown four hours later. <laughs> it's, it's my anxiety. Well, I, yeah, I wonder why I have anxiety. Uh, anyway, um, and then, so it was, I think it was a couple of years later. I did have another stint in the hospital about a year after that. I had a kind of a bad weekend. I didn't, it was only a couple of nights I spent in there. Um, doing my best. I, I'm self-employed. I, I'm still, like I said, eventually I start drinking again. I'm drinking, I'm smoking weed every day. And then I see in the newspaper that, uh, the health region or health district or whatever the hell it was called back then, uh, they were laying off, I think it was like 20 some people from the general hospital, all from the psych ward. And I think it was something like 17 of them were, uh, uh, psych nurses. 
And I thought, holy shit. Like I was in there. I know how, you know, I've, I've seen how it operates and I've seen how often security is called. Yeah. I, at one point security was called on me and I ended up spending the night locked in a room with no bed. They just threw a mattress on the floor and there was like cameras. And like, I was like, security does not deescalate things like the psych nurses are trained. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So, um, so anyway, I read this, I was like, how is this possible? And, and, and once in a while, you know, anger, it, it's a good motivator. And I was so pissed off, not like, you know, emotionally dysregulated anger. I was like focused anger. I was like, this is bullshit. So I, I wrote a, I don't know, a letter or a blog. I don't know what I was doing. I just let my feelings out on, on, well, it's not paper. It was on a, <laughs> a keyboard. And I, and I went through my, I basically told my story up to that point and, and how I thought, you know, this is all BS and, and all this stuff. And, and I talked about my suicide attempts, which I'd never really done publicly, uh, especially in a small town. And I don't even remember doing this, but I sent it to a bunch of different media outlets and I posted it on Facebook and stuff and it, it blew up. It, um, I, it kind of went viral. Like, I don't know how many tens of thousands of times that letter got shared. Uh, I saw it on, uh, web pages, like in the States and stuff, even like, I'm like, what is going on? And the next day, like, it was like all the news outlets from Regina came out to Indian head to, to interview me and talk to me about, about the stuff. So, um, so then I was kind of thrown into this advocacy role that I never thought was, you know, I'd ever be doing. So then I felt like there was extra pressure on me now. It's like, oh, okay. You know, I've got people's attentions attention now. So I, you know, let's keep this ball rolling and make some changes and make a difference. And within two months of having that pressure on me, not that other people were doing it, but my own pressure, I was in the hospital again and I woke my wife up extremely intoxicated, told her I was going to harm myself and whatever. Um, and, uh, that night I actually I wrote something on my computer. I considered it kind of a suicide note, but it wasn't really a suicide note. Um, but again, a moment of clarity, I woke my wife up. Don't remember. I was so drunk. And, uh, that was the last night I drank actually. Um, I went to the small town hospital here in Indian head and I had a, an amazing doctor in town at the time. And he basically convinced me to go to treatment and start going to AA and, and, and stuff. And so I detox in the hospital here for a few weeks and, that uh, really started, well, actually, okay, no, the other one started my journey. <laughs> this was kind of mid-journey now, but um, but quitting drinking and quitting the marijuana and all that stuff, that was that was a huge, huge uh, thing. Like, to this day, I have people reach out to me about a loved one they have or even about themselves, and they're like, you know, they're drinking, they're using, they're also depressed and all this stuff, and like, what do we treat first? the depression or the addiction. And I mean, like, again, nobody, no one's, no two people are the same for me. I had to get rid of that addiction before I could start healing, uh, with about the anxiety and the depression and what was causing the depression and anxiety. And so that, that was a, that was the brown skin of the onion. I couldn't even get to layers until that big chunk came off first. So, um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming most people are like that, but again, everybody's different. Yeah. I, I think, you know, 
that is not a road that I have traveled. However, uh, being being on the sidelines of observing, you know, people in my life, I would say, I would say, from what I'm, I have observed, purely mm-hmm. observed, that that I would I would concur with that, and and so powerful, and it must be so difficult for loved ones, spouses. Like, how may I ask how how your marriage got through? these years i mean that's had to have been a massive strain oh yeah yeah there was there was there was more than once where i wasn't sure we were we were gonna make it um and you know i don't want to get too personal but like like i said i was a bad husband i was a bad father i was a bad son i was you know i was doing things that were against my own moral code and then once you kind of like you have some moments of clarity you're like what am i doing like this is not me uh, so she was amazing. Uh, my wife was amazing. She, after the first big stay at the hospital, um, I ke- continued to see, uh, my psychiatrist and a counselor regularly. My wife knew somehow she's just a very intelligently, emotionally intelligent person. She knew that we couldn't work as a couple until she dealt with some stuff too. So whatever I was going through kind of triggered some stuff in her. So she saw someone separately to deal with issues, she traumas and things she was dealing with. And then we would see uh, someone together. So this was all happening at the same time. I was seeing my own person. She was seeing her own person. And then uh, on separate days, we would see someone as a couple. Um, and I really do feel like we got married young. Like we've been together for over 20 years and um I really do feel like we grew up together, even though we didn't, we did know each other as children. We met when I was like 20 and she was 19 or something, but you know, that we really grew up together and going through that. Um, and then the next time when I was uh, detoxing the hospital, um, and I quit drinking that night, it was shortly after that, um, that I, I kind of wanted to leave the hospital and come home. And she said, like, I can't watch you do this to yourself anymore. I love you too much. And I just can't watch anymore. And she was like, if you, if you are coming home, like just come home to get your things. Cause I can't do this anymore. And I thought, Oh shit. Okay. This is, (laughs) this is affecting people more than I thought. So I ended up, staying at the hospital and detoxing and going through the whole thing. And, um, so yeah, it wasn't like she was the second time. I wasn't like she was mad or anything. I mean, I'm sure she was mad, but, um, but yeah, it was just to, you know, she was protecting herself and the kids. She's like, I, we can't do this anymore. I can't watch you do this anymore. And, you know, the kids are getting affected by it and they're going to have traumas and stuff. And mm-mm. like, and, do you think that, that hard line in the sand from her, do you think that gave you a little nudge, a big nudge Absolutely. maybe to, yeah. 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 And, and in addiction treatment, they're like, you know, you're not doing this for other people. You're doing this for yourself. Um, and you know, I did have, you know, it was kind of an ultimatum in a way, but also I was ready. Like I was so sick of it and I was just too scared. I was too scared to do it on my own. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to do it. Like I was terrified. I I tried for so many, so many attempts to quit and to heal. And I just, it was too scary. So I quit. 
So um, generally, I don't think ultimatums work unless the other person is ready. Like I was ready. I just needed that. Yeah. That nudge. So, um, and, and I tell people all the time too, that I think she had the harder end of the deal. Um, then I've had people say, no, that's, you know, you can't compare pain. You can't compare traumas and you can't compare, uh, which is true. But uh, as a parent now, it's like, you know, if, if my kids were going through it or my wife was going through the things I was going through, I don't know if I'd be able to stick around like our, you know, just the sleepless nights, the, the absolute helplessness that she must've felt. Uh, God, I can only imagine how scary. And ugh. yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that the two of you were able to work it through. I, I don't know the statistics, but uh, marriage is hard enough on a good day, you know, to have extra stressors on it and so on and so forth. I mean, you clearly worked as a team. So I'm really, really glad to hear that. For anybody yeah, who might you. be listening, who, you know, is maybe at their their lowest point, struggling with either many of the aspects of mental health or addictions, what would be your advice to them? Oh man, there's so many things because there's so many levels to it. Uh, for one, keep advocating for yourself because the system does suck. And even when you're doing what your your doctor's orders and you think things are going well, keep want more, demand more, need get get certain dates, get you know if whatever, like demand more um, because. I'm, I guarantee you, you're not, <laughs> I, I feel bad saying this because everyone I've ever met that works in addictions and mental health and in the health authorities, they're all sweet, lovely people, but the system, it's the system that sucks. And they know that they even know that. So, um, so nothing against anyone that works in, in this field. It's just, you, you have to demand more because the system will probably fail you at some point if you don't demand more. And I've seen it time and time again. And as much as, as far as we've come from my first suicide attempt to now, which has been about 12 years, it was only a year ago or a year and a half ago where that young guy was again, told to leave the hospital in an hour later, he's found swim, you know, floating in the lake. So, uh, it's still, it's still happening. It's still not perfect. I know that there'll always be, you know, a certain percentage of people that get lost, but it's yeah. still very frustrating. And the other thing is, uh, yeah. yeah. No one's going to do it for you. No one's going to, no pill, no therapist is going to fix you. You have to do the work. And that's the hardest part is taking that first step to actually start doing the work. Um, it took my wife saying, leave. I can't, I can't be around you anymore to really start doing the work. Uh, I had seen a, a counselor for probably two or three years off and on. I wasn't doing anything. Like I would go to the counselor session. I'd come home and I'd do anything they asked me to do. I'd be taking the pills and then be going like, why, why aren't they fixing me? Why isn't, why haven't you cured me yet? You know? Um, but yeah, you really, and, and it's hard. I mean, it's, it's simple. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what you have to do is simple, but it's hard. It's not easy. Uh, you know, it's a very simple plan on paper, but executing it is extremely difficult. It's painful. It's terrible. It's, uh, you think of having a broken leg, like the trauma of the broken leg 
you don't even feel it at the time. It's the healing. It's the pain, that journey of healing. It sucks. And then it gets itchy under the cast and, you know, there's all types of things. And then you have to go through uh, rehabilitation and all this stuff like healing sucks. But if you don't do the work, I mean, you're like, you're just going to get gangrene and who knows what, um, <laughs> it's kind of a weird analogy, I guess, but <laughs> it works. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it takes a lot of courage to heal and yeah, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people either don't get that nudge or they never, or, you know, something tragic happens before they're able to get into the mindset of, uh, doing the work. So, no, um, I think you nailed it. Like there's no fairy godmother that's going to show up. You know, no one is coming to save your butt. We've got yeah. to do the work ourselves. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's simple, but far from easy. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I like to ask my guests on the podcast is what the word resilient means to you. Mm. Uh I just used this word the other day and I, I don't know if I've ever really used this word to describe myself or anyone, you know, other than like, you know, Europe after world war two or something, <laughs> but, but, uh, I use it the other day in a text to my wife, um, uh, you know, life is still hard. Um, whether it's financial or, uh, we were watching loved ones, being sick, you know, and like you said, even on a good day, marriages can be hard. Um, so to me, resilience, when I think of the word resilience, I think of my wife and I, and I think of our family. And I, I said, you know, we've been resilient in the past and we're going to be resilient still. And we're going to get through this patch of um, like our, our, it's not a relationship thing, but you know, there's people around us that are suffering and, um, financially and kids are graduating. So we're borderline empty nesting in a few months. So it's just, it's just a very transitional period in, in our lives right now for, for not just my wife and I, but for other people in our family. So, so when I think of resilience, I think of, uh, my wife and I, um, and I've never used that word to describe me or our relationship before. So it's kind of funny. You, you use that word. <laughs> you asked me about that today. Well, when I started the podcast and I knew I wanted to focus on mental health, but I knew that I also wanted to focus on people like you who really, really are resilient. And it's just really interesting to me because I do ask every single guest that question. Mm -hmm. Their their answers are all varied, right? Because mm -hmm. we're all unique snowflakes, but they're all the same at the same time. And I just find it so interesting. And I think, I think it's your story that makes you resilient, right? Like we, I did a talk just a couple of weeks ago and I said, unfortunately, we can't even talk about resilience until we talk about adversity, right? Because mm -hmm. when we're sitting on a beach eating cupcakes all day long and the unicorns are running by, we're not growing right? We're not becoming <laughs> resilient. That's, that's almost the opposite of resilience. So unfortunately it does take adversity to get resilience. And like I say, you are, you are that person. And I am so proud of you, Todd. So oh. proud of you for the work that you've done for the advo advocacy work that you continue to do. We didn't even get to your book. You've written a children's book, which I just yeah, think is, is, is just such a gift 
It's such a hard topic to talk about. Yes, sometimes daddy cries. Tell us just real quickly about your book and who sure. it's for and where people can get a hold of it. Well, actually, the, the night I quit drinking and I said I went to my computer and typed up a suicide note, it was actually the first draft of this book. So the night I quit drinking was the first draft of this book. And it was, um, you know, it was very different. It was the first draft. But it's it's basically the the perspective of a kid watching his father go through depression and anxiety and stuff. Uh, so the, I, the father never actually says anything in the book. It's always a conversation with the the kid and the mother and the mother explained to him um, that it's like having a stomach ache. Uh, you know, you're not well, so you have to get help. Sometimes you need rest. Sometimes you need medicine. Sometimes you have to go to the hospital. Uh, so it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm, for whatever reason, I have a hard time tooting my own horn. Uh, so, it, but it's one of the things I'm very, very proud of is, is that book. I think I've walked that fine line of making it um, realistic, but also not scary for kids. It's just, you know, this is what, you know, this is what it's like. Um, it, and kids do tend to understand physical things so they can apply that to their emotions and to their, uh, mental health. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's gotten really, really great feedback from parents and from, uh, professionals. So yeah, I'm really proud of it. Well, I think. <laughs> To me, the most important part is that it opens the door for conversation, right? But, I mean, yeah. I am no parenting expert, but I do know that our kids don't necessarily learn from one conversation, right? Mm -hmm. It's that constant revisiting topics and, and a book for a small child is just a brilliant way to ease into it, open the door, make this a normalized part of conversations, right? Exactly. So it's, yeah. it's it's very very brilliant, and I'm again just so grateful that you were able to to find the space and the the heart space really to write that. So yeah, if people want to get a hold of your book, is it mm -hmm. on Amazon? Yeah, it is. Yeah, if you go on Amazon.ca or .com, it's on some other websites and stuff too. Um, yeah, sometimes Daddy cries. Um, that, that I was I wanted to add real quick that something I didn't expect with the book was opening up that conversation with um uh the, the mother and the father because probably 99 percent of the people that bought the book are females so it's the mother or the uh, of the you know it's the mother of a child whose husband is suffering so then uh, um because for whatever reason men there's they i don't know what it is like i talk about mental health all the time and it's like 80 percent or 85 percent of my audience is female and so it's like, I think men don't even know <laughs> it's the problem <laughs> because they're, they either are, you know, drinking it away and, or getting angry. They don't realize their anger is actually depression or anxiety or whatever. And so they don't even realize they're suffering, but, um, so anyway, that, that was a very interesting thing with the book was, was finding that. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, I mean, maybe we'll come back and we'll do another podcast another time, but I think you critters, you males are absolute masters at a word I can never say, compartmentalization. It's a big mm. word. Um, mm -hmm. And you just are able to put it somewhere, push it down. I mean, not effectively, you don't get bonus points for doing that, <laughs> but it's something that I think men do do 
Um, and I read doo-doo. something. I read something or heard something that we, it's simple, right? We get better at what we do. So the more we push yeah. down, the better we get at pushing it down. The more mm. we talk about it, the better we get at talking about it. So, you know what? You are doing this world so much good by being a male voice, speaking to mental health. And I know that eventually things will change and more men will be, you know, opening up to this whole concept of doing the work. So I just, I cannot thank you enough, Todd, for being here today, being vulnerable, sharing your story in such a raw and real way. Friends, make sure to check out Todd's podcast called Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, and make sure to follow him on Instagram at Bunny Hugs Podcast. Stay well and be resilient, and we'll catch you next time.